Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. What I'd like to uh, start with is by uh, reminding what most of us know, which is that uh, the, the embryos are uh, the great masters. Uh, throughout uh, evolution, they have discovered those uh, exquisite ways to form that are not only fascinating, but are also very useful to solve real-world problems. We can learn uh, enormously uh, from them uh, almost everything is there. In our case, uh, we, are, we are studying the early uh, mammalian embryo that is called the blastocyst. It is a powerful model, not only because it comprises all the cells that will generate uh, the full organism, but also because uh, it is autonomous, it is free-floating, uh, it is adaptive, uh, also we can also say it's self-organizing, and uh, finally it's, it's small enough to be studied in great detail. And um, the biggest problem that we have uh, studying embryos is that they are extremely difficult to work with. Uh, they are tough nuts uh, to crack. And if we want to really and deeply understand them, uh, I would argue that we must be able to build them from their uh, individual components. And um, the structure that you can see here is, uh, is in fact remarkably, remarkably similar to the mammalian conceptus just before implantation into the uterus. At that stage, uh, it is called the blastocyst. It comprises about 100 cells, and part of it is going to form the placenta. Uh, it's the outer red cells that you can see here, while uh, the rest uh, inside will form uh, the fetus and other extramilic tissues. However, this uh, specific structure uh, that you see here did not arise from the fusion of egg and sperm, but it's actually formed through self-organization of stem cells all in a dish. So this is our approach uh, to rebuild the, uh, the embryo to, to better uh, understand it. And uh, before we start, um, I wanted to uh, uh, recap some uh, key vocabulary and knowledge uh, that will uh, be necessary for, for the rest of, of the talk. So what you see here is um, an oocyte that is being fertilized uh, by a sperm to form a gen genetically unique uh, zygote. And this zygote in the mouse and in the human is going to divide and uh, form two cells, four cells, eight cells. And uh, during those first uh, divisions uh, um, that happen uh, uh, during the first days, you can see the days uh, of the mouse development here. Uh, during those first divisions, the cells are thought to be uh, very similar uh, to each other's in terms of potential. The, the system is also very plastic. You can remove one cell and still form a, a, full, uh, a full organism. However, when the, the, the embryo, the conceptus, is reaching the 16-cell stage, there's a very clear event that happens uh, where the cells in the outer are uh, becoming uh, one lineage that is called the trophoblast lineage, and that will form the full placenta, while the cells inside uh, remain totipotent 
for some time and uh, then uh, very quickly uh, become pluripotent in order to form uh, what will become the fetus. And this, once this first lineage segregation has occurred, uh, the structure can form uh, this uh, blastocyst, which is uh, our um, stage of interest, which is formed with a fluid field cavity that you can see here, that is surrounded by an epithelium of trophoblast and that shelters this uh, inner cell mass. And this inner cell mass is going to form two cell types. First, those red cells that are uh, called the epiblasts that are going to form the full fetus. And then a second cell type that's called primitive endoderm that's going to form the yolk sac. And at this point, it's ready to implant inside the uterus. But uh, what we can do is to harvest those blastocysts and put them in culture. And depending on the, uh, the uh, condition that you use, you can expand the stem cells that it contains. So, of course, if you, uh, as we all know, you can expand the embryonic stem cells using uh, leaf leukemia inhibitory factor, but you can also expand trophoblast stem cells using uh, fibroblast growth factor four. And uh, these are stem cells that can be massively expanded, they can be genetically edited, they can be extremely useful tools to uh, study development. And they are frozen in time. And the best way to show that is that you can reinject them into an embryo and they are going to participate to the development of the embryo itself or the placenta. So what uh, we uh, did in the lab uh, is to um, combine those two uh, stem cell types uh, and to uh, promote their self-organization into a structure that is uh, remarkably similar to the, uh, the blastocyst and that uh, I called uh, a blastoid. And uh, of course, this allows to do a couple of experiments that uh, we could not uh, do before, uh, just uh, for uh, the sake of uh, producing them in large numbers, but also because we can uh, uh, do uh, a couple of other things uh, with them. So um, this is a um, um, uh, brief summary. Uh, again, we can uh, get the blastocyst from uh, ex extract and derive embryonic stem cells, trophoblast stem cells, uh, expand them, genetically edit them, uh, uh, do all kinds of uh, in interesting things at this step, and then after re-aggregate them and form uh, those blastoids. And in order to form those blastoids, we have to first uh, deposit the embryonic stem cells. They are going to form a cluster here, and then we, uh, we sprinkle the trophoblast stem cells on top of them, and they are going to form a double-layer double structure that under specific conditions that, that I'm happy to discuss with are uh, capable of forming a blastoid. And those blastoids are uh, forming very efficiently if you have the right number and ratios of cells. If you have about eight embryonic stem cells and about 20 trophoblast stem cells, the efficiency is about 70%. This was uh, quite an exciting time uh, when we published this in 2018, uh, because uh, for the first time we had a model uh, of the full conceptus. We had a model that represented uh, both the embryonic and all the extraembryonic uh, uh, compartments. And beyond the morphology, uh, those uh, blastoids uh, form analogs of the uh, uh, three lineages. Uh, here you can see uh, the trophoblast analogs that are in, uh, in red and that are normally uh, going to form the placenta. You can see uh, the uh, analogs of the epiblast uh, in white that will normally form the full body, the epiblast. And uh, the uh, third cell type, the primitive endoderm that will ultimately form uh, the yolk sac. And those primitive endoderm cells are forming by differentiation from the epiblast. And because uh, blastoids are modeling the pre-implantation stage, 
they could be transferred uh, inside uh, the uterus of uh, a pseudo-pregnant mouse where they implanted. And uh, you can see here, so you can see here on the uh, left horn, we uh, transferred uh, the blastoids. On the right horn, we did not. And what you can see here is that the uterus is reacting by forming a cocoon around it. Uh, this, this cocoon is called a decidua. And um, within a few days in utero, those blastoids are growing. The structure is elongating. The cells are differentiating. But very quickly, the cells are getting disorganized. And we have not formed a mouse from blastoids. Actually, the experiment has been repeated now, and nobody has formed uh, a mouse out of a blastoid. But uh, the reason uh, why uh, we formed those blastoids is that uh, by observing such embryo models uh, forming, uh, we can interact with uh, previously inaccessible principles of development. And especially this is powerful to highlight what are the minimal requirements for development to occur. Uh, the famous clause of uh, necessity in, in science, what is necessary for the embryo to develop. And uh, obviously we don't have uh, uh, at the moment everything to, uh, to have those uh, structures developing, but uh, we are using this bottom-up approach in order to understand uh, those uh, minimal factors. And if we can better understand and uh, uh, answer questions with uh, blastoid, it is because uh, early mammalian embryos come in very small numbers and remain difficult to experiment with, despite the uh, CRISPR breakthroughs and uh, all kinds of uh, um, other uh, ways to manipulate them, they, they are still difficult to, to manipulate. On the contrary, the blastoids can be formed in uh, virtually uh, infinite numbers, and they are also amenable to uh, high throughput genetics, incorporation of uh, complex circuits, or uh, doing, uh, they are amenable also to molecular screens. And these are some of the important bases for scientific and biomedical discoveries. So using this, uh, this model, we uh, have focused on re-exploring a very classical concept in developmental biology, which is called embryonic induction, when one group of cells is uh, directing the development of another one. And uh, the classical um, uh, model uh, of embryonic induction was depicted uh, in for blastosis development by uh, Cope, uh, uh, it was in 1978, and uh, he suggested uh, through correlative observations that the blastocyst form through uh, molecular inductions that are originating from those inner epiblast cells and that are driving the development of the outer uh, trophoblast. Uh, Cope was actually using a microdissection uh, to isolate, uh, to cut the, the blastocyst and to isolate the left and right parts, and by growing them separately, he proved that the inductions are locally regulating the trophoblast proliferation. And it's only uh, 20 years later, in uh, 1998, that uh, the lab of Janet Ronson in Toronto showed that a key molecule that acts as a mitogenic inducer is actually FGF4 fibroblast growth factor 4. And that is actually the rationale behind using FGF4 in order to derive mouse trophoblast stem cells. And for a long time, uh, this was actually the only known uh, inducer. So uh, we, um, we caught up uh, this on, on, on this uh, concept and uh, tried to uh, uh, fill uh, the knowledge gaps here. And uh, we actually did this uh, by systematically comparing uh, blastoids 
with trophospheres. And trophospheres are formed exactly in the same way as blastoids, but without the embryonic stem cells. So we deposit the trophoblast stem cells in those microwells that you might have seen in the previous slides, and we use the exact same medium in order to, uh, that we use to form blastoids, but we do not put the ES cells. And you can see already that the trophospheres are quite different as compared to uh, the trophoblast of uh, blastoids. And uh, this already tells you a, a little bit about uh, what is the role of those cells. And uh, of course, the first thing that we want to do is to uh, check uh, if the model is recapitulating the uh, classical uh, experiments of uh, Cope and uh, Tanaka. And um, we, so we look at proliferation. And uh, what you can see here is that we start with a certain number of uh, trophoblast stem cells. And during uh, the course of blastoid formation, this number is clearly uh, increasing. So the, those cells are proliferating. Uh, on the contrary, trophospheres barely do. So in exactly the same conditions, you can see that the presence of the embryonic stem cells is clearly extremely important to regulate uh, what was known as the only uh, embryonic inductions. And so this is, this is interesting for us. We see that the model is actually recapitulating what, what is known and that clearly uh, those inductions are extremely important for uh, building the, uh, the blastocyst uh, and the blastoid in that case. And uh, a second thing that we can look out is uh, a second function uh, that is classical for stem cells, which is cell renewal. So we can do a colony formation assay, isolate the trophoblasts from blastoids and from tropospheres. And you can see here that the trophoblasts from blastoids have a much higher potential to form a colony as compared to the trophoblasts of tropospheres. So this tells us that those embryonic inductions are not only regulating proliferation, but also the self-renewal of, of those uh, stem cells here. Uh, whereas in, in the absence of those, they, they are losing this capacity, they are, they are actually differentiated. So this is, this is, this is good, we are, we are recapitulating what, is, what was already known and clearly uh, the, the hypothesis was very strong. Um, and now what we can do is to systematically uh, uh, observe uh, uh, the, the role of those embryonic inductions uh, by comparing uh, blastoids and, and trophospheres. And this is what we did here. Uh, this was early days of uh, single cell sequencing. Uh, what you can see here is a UMAP of uh, single cells that were uh, taken from either uh, trophoblast stem cells that are cultured in 2D. So this is the starting point. You can see them here. Also embryonic stem cells that are cultured in 2D. And then you can see the uh, trophoblasts that were coming from blastoids. And these are actually uh, embryonic stem cells that are uh, coming from embryonic bodies that are cultured exactly in the same condition as blastoids, but without the trophoblast. And now you can see here uh, the transcriptome of uh, single cells uh, isolated from trophospheres. And uh, this is actually uh, embryonic stem, cell, uh, stem cells isolated from blastoids. And uh, now we can uh, look at, uh, systematically look at the embryonic inductions by comparing the transcriptome of this group of cells and, and, and this group of cells. And uh, we came up with a couple of bioinformatic analyses. I'll just show you one, which is related to signaling pathway activity. And you can see that uh, at the top uh, of the list, uh, we got actually like the MAP kinase pathway, which was uh, very important for us to see. And this is confirming the work of, of Tanaka in the lab of uh, Janet Ronson, that uh, FGF4 is indeed produced by the epiblast and is regulating uh, the, uh, the MAP kinase pathway into the trophoblast. Now uh, we can go down the list. There are all kinds of extremely interesting things, 
just pinpoint at the hippo pathway, some classical developmental pathway, JAK-STAT, the WINT. And uh, we actually stopped at the end of this list for, on the TGF-beta pathway because there were some interesting candidates, uh, nodal and BMP4, that we uh, that are being expressed by the epiblast. However, the, the, the functions are not known, so uh, <clears throat> we can we can now uh, do a couple of assays, and I'll just show you one here, um, where we uh, uh, in fact look at a very specific, a very uh, simple uh, morphometric features of uh, blastoids and tropospheres, which is a diameter of the overall structure. And uh, so this is the di diameter of, uh, of a blastoid. Uh, we are actually looking at more than blastoids here. We are looking at everything that we had in the plate, uh, uh, but uh, the average is here. And uh, you can see that the average of a uh, diameter of a troposphere is uh, actually smaller. Uh, and uh, now we can, what you can do is to do is to replace the embryonic stem cells by the factors that they produce and to those uh, BMP4 or nodal on top of those tropospheres. And what you can see here is that the diameter is increasing quite nicely for BMP4, about 20% increase for uh, nodal. And uh, when you combine the two, they are, they are actually like, uh, they, are, they, they, add, they add up. And the, the second thing that we did after, uh, after looking at this is to count the number of cells in all those uh, tropospheres. Actually, the number of cells are, are absolutely flat. So uh, th those molecules are not regulating proliferation of the trophoblast, but they are uh, allowing for the, the, the structure to, to, to still increase in size. So what we, uh, what we hypothesize at this point is that those, uh, those uh, molecules might play a role in order to maintain the epithelial integrity of uh, those trophoblast cysts in order for them to swell. You know? So uh, for, 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 you to, for a structure to swell, you have to seal it, and then you have to pump. And what we suspect is that uh, the uh, BMP4 and nodal are acting on the, on the ceiling. And uh, so we, we worked on this hypothesis by first uh, doing uh, knockouts for nodal only in non-brinic stem cells, an experiment that is quite difficult to do uh, still in, uh, in, uh, in the blastocyst. And uh, what we observed is that indeed, like the, the size of the cavity is decreasing. So we are phenocopying the, the phenotype that, uh, that we saw by, uh, uh, by dosing a nodal on top of trophospheres. We can then uh, sequence uh, those structures. And what we find out is that there are uh, two uh, key transcription factors, CDX2 and KF6, that are regulated. We're quite happy to see this because CDX2 knockout has been, dis have been described and uh, they actually form a blastocyst, but the blastocyst cannot expand. Uh, it, the epithelium is, is, is too rough. It, it doesn't really like um, form properly and those blastocysts cannot implant inside the uterus. So we thought, uh, okay, this, this, is, this is fitting quite nicely, but uh, this has been described uh, already. So we are, we are going to look at this KLF6. KLF6 has a defect, but the defect that has been reported is, is, reported is much later during presentation. Uh, and we also saw a bunch of cell-cell uh, junctions, uh, tie junctions and uh, adherence junctions that were uh, uh, genes that were regulated. So what we can do now is to, to do a KLF6 knockout only in the trophoblast stem cells, and then we can form the blastoids. And what we see is that we, again, we phenocopy the phenotype where the size of the cavity is, is decreased. These are two different clones. So this is, uh, this is coming to the, this idea that uh, we have like um, 
uh, nodal that is being secreted by uh, the epiblast and that this is regulating uh, the epithelial development of uh, the trophoblast and that if you don't have, uh, and that this development is partly regulated by KLF6. And um, this, is, this is quite interesting in terms of embryology because it shows that uh, the effect of a mutation into one of the lineages can actually propagate to the other compartment. And so this is, this is this a mutation into one compartment can actually deeply change the whole organism. And uh, these are uh, hypotheses that, that, that we can test now. And it would be actually interesting to know if the size of the cavity that we decrease here uh, is actually impacting back into, uh, into the epiblast uh, by uh, recipro uh, reciprocal inductions or other mechanism. It is possible that the size of the cavity changes, for example, the local concentration of proteins or metabolites is affecting the, the, the embryo itself. And uh, this, this allows us to think of uh, how um, uh, embryos might have evolved and changed uh, their uh, overall size in order to uh, develop uh, different functions. So um, the last experiment that, uh, that like to show is that uh, we can actually go back to tropospheres now and uh, we can uh, stimulate those tropospheres with BMP2 and nodal and the diameter is increasing. And now we do, when we do the same thing with KLF6 knockout tropospheres, you can see that the tropospheres are smaller and then they don't respond at all with uh, BMP4, to BMP4 and nodal. And uh, we found a couple of things that are not properly regulated and that are regula related to epithelial development. One of the things is uh, uh, keratin-8, uh, uh, that is quite well known to uh, play a role in epithelial development, and ecaderins also, the intracellular part of ecaderins that was, uh, was done regulated. So, uh, so this, is, uh, this is interesting because uh, by comparing this transcriptomic data, by generating knockouts in functional assay, we can, we can fill uh, this knowledge gap by and, uh, and show that the inner epiblast is not only uh, producing FGF4, it's also producing other factors. I didn't uh, show you, but it's producing IL6, it's producing uh, IL11, producing nodal BMP4, also BMP7, which are regulating different trophoblast function. And the first big function is growth. Uh, by, promoting, that by promoting both the proliferation and the self-renewal, of the trophoblast, those inductions are maintaining the stem cells that are going to sustain the growth of the placenta. And those, uh, those, this proliferation and self-renewal is mostly regulated by FGF4, IL6, and IL11, uh, according to our, our experiments. By regulating uh, those pathways, you are regulating self-renewal proliferation. You can allow for the placenta to grow on that side. Uh, and so this, this, is the, this is the first function. The second function uh, that those inductions are regulating is a function of patterning. Uh, the combination of proliferation and epithelial morphogenesis, that is regulated by uh, nodal and PMP4 uh, at least, um, is, allows for the blastocyst to form a cavity. And the main function of this cavity is to distance a pool of trophoblast from the inducers. And this is this pool of trophoblast that is being, uh, uh, that is being less exposed to those embryonic inducers. And as a result of this distancing, these cells opposite of the cavity are rapidly differentiating and they become sticky. And this is this stickiness 
that allows for the blastocyst to uh, attach to the uterus. So you see that the second function of patterning, uh, that is the combination of proliferation and epithelial morphogenesis, is extremely important in order to like to form those, this other pool of cells that is going to play a, a very crucial role during the interaction with the uterus. And uh, this, is, this is a wonderful picture of a mouse blastocyst that has uh, just landed and attached to the, uh, the uterus lining, which is called the endometrium. And this picture was uh, taken by the lab of uh, Anne Sutherland, and it captures like the first touch between uh, the mother and the embryo. And as, as you can see, it happens through those sticky cells that are opposite of the, uh, the epiblast. Of the, uh, so uh, one last experiment that we can do with the, with the mouse is uh, to um, uh, to see if those embryonic inductions are actually necessary for the implantation inside the uterus. So we can transfer them back into the uterus. And what you, uh, what you can see here is that the trophospheres have a strongly diminished potential to interact with the uterus. And so we verified here that those trophospheres that lack the inducers, are they are barely proliferating. They are barely self-renewing, they fail to undergo proper epithelial development, and they differentiate prematurely. And when transferred into, into uh, the uterus, they, they, are, they, are, they have lost the capacity to interact with, uh, with uh, the uterine tissues. So this is, this is kind, of, it's kind of interesting uh, if you look at the big picture here, because um, as we all know, like those extremity tissues, uh, the placenta and the yolk sac, are extremely important to support the development of the fetus. Uh, but uh, at the very beginning, before implantation, it is actually the opposite. It's the embryonic part that is uh, going to guide the development of the extraembryonic uh, tissues. Uh, it's going to shape the development of those uh, the trophoblast tissue. And the reason why it's doing this is to allow for this tissue to, uh, uh, to implant inside the uterus. So in some ways, the, uh, at the very beginning of life, the, it's, it's actually the, the future fetus, the epiblast, that is investing uh, into, into its own future by fueling the development of those extraordinary uh, tissues. And of course, those tissues are, are paying back uh, uh, 1,000 times later by, by uh, allowing, uh, nurturing them for, for their later development. A couple of years ago, we, we, we thought that uh, we would, it would be nice to, to, to be able to also uh, uh, tackle those questions in the, in the human system. And um, the reason why we, uh, we, we wanted to do this is to test whether those same basic principles are occurring in the human. And uh, because there's, there's one interesting difference between mouse and human, uh, which is that their blastocyst implants via their opposite side. So in humans, these are the sticky cells. In the mouse, I told you that the sticky cells are here. In humans, they are exactly like 180 degrees on the opposite side. So sometimes during evolution, the system underwent a 180 degrees rotation. And this rotation probably had very important consequences because it strongly constrains the way that the embryo is further developing inside the uterus. A second uh, interesting difference that, that we thought would be 
good to look at is that the cavity of the human blastocyst is actually proportionally larger in, uh, in human than in mice. So when thinking of the roles of those loops of inductions between uh, the embryonic and extraembryonic lineages, those, those facts are reason, uh, resonate here. However, at this point, uh, no one knows, uh, and partly because of the difficulties in studying the human blastocyst. So uh, in order to form human blastoids, one has to start with the right cells. And uh, we found out that by aggregating those so-called PXGL uh, human embryonic stem cells that were established by the lab of uh, Austin Smith at that time in uh, Cambridge University, and by stimulating them with the correct uh, cocktail of molecules, and here we are talking about the triple inhibition of the HIPPO, ERK, and TGF-beta pathway, uh, human blastoids can actually form uh, with a remarkably high efficiency. And uh, this efficiency is not an anecdotic. It's, it, when, when you see such efficiency, you, uh, it, it, makes you, it gives you confidence that you actually have, you're, you're starting with the right cells and you're uh, stimulating them in the right way. Uh, we uh, actually uh, achieve um, uh, about 70% uh, of efficiency, which uh, was um, quite, uh, quite uh, spectacular for us. And uh, so uh, using all those uh, different cell lines, uh, we, can, uh, we always uh, have about 70% uh, of the microwaves that are filled with a structure that is morphologically uh, similar to the uh, human blastocyst. And that means the cyst, a cavity, and one uh, unique cluster that forms on one side. Um, during the formation of these human blastoids, there's a very interesting process of growth and specification control uh, that happens by which uh, the system is sensing and adapting its own size and the ratios between the three uh, cell types that it forms. And we are actually currently investigating uh, these so-called self-organizing uh, phenomena. You can see that the, uh, the cell numbers are quite uh, tight and um, between the three cell types and uh, that the ratios are actually even, even tighter. But uh, before we engage into uh, any type of uh, mechanistic studies, it is, it is extremely important that we properly evaluate how closely human blastoids are mimicking development. And on these UMAPs, uh, you can see that uh, over time, the PXGL uh, human uh, pluripotent stem cells that are in orange here are uh, first generating two cell types within 24 hours. Uh, and this one cell type is very close to the PXGL cells, and it's the epiblast of the blastoid. And uh, the other cell type is uh, further away, and these are uh, the trophoblast. And only in the second step, between 60 and 96 hours, the epiblast is producing a third cell type. Uh, that is uh, uh, an, an analog of the primitive endoderm. And this is the precise sequence of blastocyst development. Trophoblast first and primitive endoderm last. And this whole uh, process happens within uh, 96 hours, which is quite similar to the timing of human blastocyst development. Between the morula and the late blastocyst, there is about 3.5 days. Um, so, uh, and this is, this is extremely important uh, because 
we have like a sequence and timing that is similar to blastocyst development. And uh, importantly, at the end of the process, uh, we have only three cell types that formed. These are actually controlled that we spiked into the experiment. These are so-called the primed human embryonic stem cells that represent uh, uh, perigastrulation stage uh, embryo. And these are the human trophoblast stem cells that were derived by a Japanese group uh, 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 study led by Okai a couple of years ago and that uh, represent a post-implantation stage. And you can find back, so you can find back these uh, three cell types that are uh, clearly uh, segregated. Uh, their transcriptome is clearly different and each of them expresses the genes that are uh, specific to uh, the three uh, lineages. Here we have genes that are specific to the epiblast, SUSD2, a very classical marker, OCT4. And here you have uh, some that are classical to the trophoblast, the GATA2, carotene 18, and here uh, classical for the uh, primitive endoderm. However, uh, they, uh, th this, is not, this is not sufficient for uh, really like uh, understanding if at the transcriptome level, they, uh, those cells are uh, similar to the, the blastocyst. If, if we want to do so, we have to merge those blastoid cells with cells from human embryos that are harvested at different stages. And uh, here you can see in blue, uh, pre-blastocyst stage uh, human embryo. Here, um, uh, the blastocyst, which is in green, you've got the trophoblast here, the primitive endoderm and the epiblast. And here in those two colors, you have the post-implantation stages. And uh, you can see that uh, the uh, human, uh, the, the, the cells, so this is the reference map and, and the, the cells of the blastoids are very nicely matching with the three different compartments of the blastocyst stage. Um, we have, like, here we have spiked uh, human, pri primed human embryonic stem cells that are very nicely hooking up to the gast gastrula stage. And uh, overall, we counted that we have about 3% of the cells of the blastoids that are off target. And a lot of them are clustering with the uh, extra harmonic uh, mesoderm of the gastrula stage. So overall human blastoids are forming efficiently, uh, timely, uh, according to the right uh, sequence. And they are forming about 97% uh, of blastocyst-like cells. In 2021, there are about six labs that proposed protocols to form models of the early human embryo. And the single cell sequencing RNA, single cell RNA sequencing data from four of them have been reanalyzed by an independent consortium that was led by Sophie Petropoulos in Montreal and Frédéric Lanner in the Karolinska Institute. And from this analysis, it appeared that uh, forming blastoids with blastocyst-like cells requires that uh, one starts with the right shade of human pluripotent stem cells. And we are proposing the PXGL state as a, as, uh, as, a very, as a very good state. And we have to use the right cocktail of molecules. And if, uh, uh, this, if not, the system can uh, form morphologically to some extent, uh, although at, at, at low efficiency, but it will comprise uh, mostly uh, post-implantation-like uh, cells. Of course, uh, because cells evolve rapidly during development and to fulfill the, their different functions, it is, it, it is very important to form the right cells for the model to be predictive of, uh, of uh, human uh, development. 
And uh, here you can see uh, the, uh, the timeline uh, that uh, uh, Frederick Laner and Sophie uh, Petropoulos uh, put together. So you can see the pre-implantation uh, pre blastocyst st stage here. The blastocyst starts on day five. It goes over day six and day seven. Here you've got the trophoblast that form, here the epiblast, and there's another, uh, the third cell type, the primitive endoderm that forms here. Uh, this is another uh, reference data set, but what we can see here is that uh, the, the blastoids are very nicely uh, clustering with the primitive endoderm, uh, the epiblast stage, the primitive endoderm stage, and with the, the, the trophoblast stage. Uh, these are the naive cells to start with, these are the primed cells, and these are the uh, uh, human trophoblastium cells that I told you about that are also post-implantation. So this part is, is post-implantation trophoblastium. So this is uh, the, the molecular characterization is, is, is very interesting and, and, and important, uh, but we also want to know if, if those structures are, have, have a specific uh, have specific functions. And of course, uh, because it is uh, ethically inacceptable and uh, now actually forbidden by the International Society of Stem Cell Research to transfer human blastoids inside the uterus, uh, we uh, developed. Uh, an implantation model uh, assay using endometrium uh, organoids. So we can expand those uh, organoids. Uh, this is done in matrigel, uh, and uh, it has been done by uh, two different groups, the group of uh, Margarita uh, Turco in uh, Cambridge and the group of uh, Hugo van Kelkom in, uh, in Belgium, in Brussels, uh, in Leuven, excuse me. And uh, so we can expand those organoids, and then we can plate them in 2D in order to facilitate the deposition of uh, the blastoids. And then we can stimulate uh, those with uh, the hormones of pregnancy, progesterone and estrogen. And uh, those hormones are triggering the receptivity of, of this those endometrial cells. And very interestingly, when the endometrial cells are not stimulated with hormones, the blastoids can literally sit on top of them for days without attaching. There is no interaction that occurs between those cell types. On the contrary, uh, upon hormonal stimulation, before we uh, uh, deposit the blastoids, this is priming the, end, the, the endometrial cells, uh, which allows them to uh, attach uh, the blastoids. And you can see the blastoids, we have about like 30, now we have more than 40% of, of the blastoids that are attaching, and uh, they start to grow on the polar side, on the, on, the, on the side that is close to the epiblast. And this is exactly what you actually see during uh, uh, early human embryogenesis. So there is a very specific interaction that is happening between uh, the blastoids and the hormonally stimulated uh, endometrium cells. And beyond this, in this movie, uh, you can see that uh, before attaching, the blastoids orientate and position themselves with the polar side down. And this is not an anecdotal, uh, but this, is, this actually happens very robustly. And this, this is suggesting that the blastoids are forming those sticky cells that uh, we were talking about previously. Uh, and that they are forming them on, on the, the right spot which allows for the, the adhesion to the, the endometrium. And uh, you can see here on, on this movie that uh, it was taken uh, just after, uh, the, just at the moment when the blastoids are attaching, uh, uh, we are pushing uh, the, the medium around uh, the blastoid with a pipette, the pipette that you can see here, and you can see that 
they really attach very nicely via, the, the, via those sticky cells that are uh, abuting the epiblast. This is suggesting that uh, somehow um, the blastoids are forming spontaneously an axis. So uh, we, we looked at this axis formation and we, we observed that the majority of the blastoids, about 60% of them, are undergoing a process of trophoblast maturation in the polar region that is marked by the, uh, the, the expression of NR2F2 transcription factor and by many other genes that we pull down by uh, RNA sequencing. Uh, and um, so this is suggesting that uh, contrary to mice in humans, the embryonic inductions that are coming from the epiblast uh, that you can see in yellow here are not only promoting the growth of the stem cells that are forming the placenta, but they are also inducing the, the maturation so, that, so to make them sticky uh, and allow them to attach to the, to the uterus. Um, we had about like 30% that, uh, that did not form an axis or did not form an axis yet. And uh, we had a very small percentage that form an inverted uh, axis. Uh, so, uh, so if, if the hypothesis is, is, is right, uh, by uh, preventing the formation of the epiblast, uh, we should be able to impact uh, the formation, the maturation of those uh, polar trophoblasts and their stickiness. And we actually prevented epiblast formation in two different ways uh, by uh, to form what we call trophospheres, uh, as, uh, just, uh, just like in the mouse system. Uh, and um, we did this by inhibiting the stat pathway or by uh, over, uh, uh, it's actually over inhibiting, uh, very strongly inhibiting the HIPPO pathway using XMU-MP1 small molecule. And those uh, trophospheres, uh, we, we analyzed them by transcriptomic uh, uh, and um, they are actually reflecting the early, this, those ones are reflecting the early and the late uh, stage uh, trophoblast. Uh, blastocyst trophoblast. And accordingly uh, to the to their hypothesis, those trophospheres are actually incapable of interacting with uh, the hormonally stimulated endometrial cells. Uh, so this is fitting with this idea that, um, that, is, uh, that those epiblasts are really like inducing the local maturation. And we, uh, we actually have the two uh, controls here. The first control are uh, human trophoblast stem cells uh, that are post-implantation, and those uh, aggregates of human trophoblast stem cells are also incapable of interacting with the hormonally stimulated endometrial cells. Uh, this, uh, this is a bit of a, a silly control here, uh, but it's just more technical control. We, we also made aggregates of uh, naive or human embryonic stem cells. They are also incapable of interacting. So uh, this, this is actually like quite striking because if if the cells, uh, if the trophoblasts are too early, uh, they, they, they are not capable of sticking to the endometrium. And uh, if it's too late, they, they, also, they also have lost this capacity. So clearly those embryonic inducers are uh, creating a, a short window of opportunity for uh, the embryo to uh, interact with uh, the uterus. And uh, uh, this is actually a concept that, that, that that is quite well known in uh, clinical embryology. It's called the window of implantation. So we think that we might have recapitulated this clinical uh, concept of window of implantation. And of course, now we have the possibility of like finding uh, the, 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 the pathways and the, the, the processes that are behind this. 
So through a transcriptomic analysis, we actually extracted a handful of uh, ligand and receptor pairs that are uh, that might be med mediating this uh, initial interaction between the, the embryo uh, and the mother. Uh, we can also um, culture those uh, human blastoids uh, for longer time on top of the endometrial cells or also on plastic. And we did this until a time equivalent of 13 days. Um, but uh, of course, these are not reflecting a uh, human embryo on day 13. Uh, however, we are, uh, we are the blastoids are capable of very nicely expanding the three lineages. So three lineages are progressing um, and they are, they are proliferating. However, this, this has very little to do with, uh, with uh, a day 13 uh, human embryo. So I'd just like to conclude, by, we are now in a position to, uh, to try to understand uh, how during evolution, those two species have created partly different ways to form, especially how this axis has inverted and led to the embryo implanting via uh, uh, diametrically uh, opposite side. And it is tempting to, tempting to think that this uh, opposite mode of uh, ingression into the uterus had uh, some important uh, repercussions on the early development of those uh, two species. Uh, of note, like the, the first weeks of human embryogenesis diseases are, are very prone to failure. There are about 50% of human fertilized eggs that fail to form uh, a baby. And uh, among those 50%, 75% of these pregnancies are uh, failing uh, around implantation time. So this implantation time is, is a bottleneck of, of human development. And how and why such uh, fragility of uh, early uh, development appeared during evolution is, is actually un, unknown. And uh, although it might have contributed at some point to the fitness of, of, of humans, it is currently causing all kinds of problems of infertility, pregnancy failure. It also has a deleterious impact on the, on the adult health. Those first weeks are actually extremely important for, for, uh, for later, much later uh, uh, events. So, uh, uh, I, I believe that the fundamental understanding of the specificities of uh, early human development is actually providing a, a powerful lever to improve uh, global health through effective uh, family planning, reducing uh, an ongoing uh, global fertility decrease, and uh, also uh, uh, maybe uh, preventing um, uh, diseases in adult life. Uh, finally, I'd just like to finish by uh, saying that um, uh, we have to communicate properly about those embryo models. Uh, at the moment, uh, those blastoids are very rudimentary and they are clearly very different from embryos. For example, the epigenetic imprinting, uh, the uh, X chromosome status is ex extremely likely to be very different. And we have to recognize this. Uh, so similar to a Picasso painting, uh, we, we can kind of recognize uh, what is depicted, but we have also have to admit that this is quite different from, from, from the real thing. And if you are interested in the, in the ethics of uh, embryo models, uh, you can have a look at this, these papers that uh, we have partly uh, participated to, and uh, would like to thank the ISCCR for taking us seriously and uh, for developing a, a, a nice ethical framework for, for, for this research. So with this, I'd like to uh, thank the uh, the people who participated to uh, the human study that uh, we did at, at the IMBA Institute of the Austrian Academy of Sciences, and uh, especially Haru Nobu, that you can see here, uh, Alok Javali, 
and um, uh, Heidar Hidari, uh, who, along with uh, uh, Teresa Sommer, who was a master student, who is now a PhD student in the lab, uh, have, uh, have developed all, all this. And uh, I'd like also to thank uh, some uh, collaborators, especially Laurent David at, uh, in France, who uh, has done the reference data, a lot of work to get reference data set for the transcriptomic of human blastocyst, and uh, Hugo von Kelkom in Leuven, who uh, helped us with the endometrium uh, organelle. Uh, I thank you very much for your attention. I may take uh, the chairman's prerogative and just ask you to perhaps um, speculate a bit about uh, how you might use your system, and, and, and this is a pretty obvious question, to, to actually start modeling diseases. Uh, you have the great advantage of being able to look at the earliest, earliest stages of pre- and post-implantation uh, human embryogenesis, we we believe that many diseases, ev even those that sometimes don't become apparent until later childhood or even adulthood, begin at that point. Uh, can, can you envision how, or maybe you've already started doing this, how you could start modeling certain diseases? Like, uh, you, you alluded to pre-implantation, problems of pre-implantation, but maybe even... Uh, uh, pregnancy-induced hypertension and the uh, preterm birth and things of that sort. Have you started pursuing uh, This is extremely interesting. So th these are these are very early days, and um, uh, it is it is not completely clear uh, when are those uh, defects or uh, insults happening that would impact um, uh, development and uh, adult life. However, from epidemiological studies, it, it is clear that uh, it is the first, the first weeks of pregnancy are extremely important. One of the uh, interesting uh, facts is that there, there's an epidemiological study of, in Netherlands where they looked at the weight of babies uh, based on um, uh, at, at the end of the Second World War. And they actually, like, uh, in the last uh, year of the war, there was uh, starvation in Netherlands. And um, the, the starvation led to uh, uh, babies that are smaller. And uh, those uh, babies uh, were especially smaller when uh, the starvation happened in the very, very first uh, months, the, probably the first two months of, of pregnancy. So, um, and, uh, and very strikingly, 50 years later, there was a surge of chronic diseases that happened uh, in Netherlands. So, uh, for, from those same, those same children. So, so there's clearly a link here, uh, but, um, uh, and, and the link is thought to be centered on placental development. So uh, the development of the placenta in the early stages uh, seem to be extremely important in order to uh, to develop a proper connection with the mother, a proper turnover of uh, of the vascular system of the mother, and in order to like uh, um, uh, fuel uh, the development of of the fetus. And if this does not happen um, uh, properly, uh, of, uh, the the first thing is preeclampsia. Uh, and uh, of course, this leads to uh, very often to uh, pregnancy loss. But if this happens suboptimally, then the placenta cannot develop uh, properly, and this impacts directly the development of the fetus. So, for a long, very long answer to uh, to, to a very good question, we um, the 
I think the, the remodeling of the uh, vascular system by the trophoblast in the first weeks is probably like a very important event that uh, we might be able to uh, model in the, the next few years. One of the questions is, uh, is an interesting one about experimental method. Uh, the questioner was wondering, uh, obviously blastoids are asymmetric, but he was, uh, the questioner was wondering, could you artificially generate a symmetrical blastoid by using opposing differentiating gradients, since it's an artificial system? Uh, yeah, so this is, this is a very, we are definitely trying to do this, because, <laughs> um, especially in the mouse, because uh, you can, uh, by, 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 do, by manipulating the symmetry, uh, you can manipulate the way it interacts uh, with the uterus. And so, uh, so this is something that can be done. It can be done uh, using uh, uh, externally imposed uh, uh, gradients. Uh, it can also be done by uh, uh, developing some synthetic biology tools uh, so that uh, the, uh, the regulation of the left and right part of the blastoids happens in different ways. So we, this, this is, these are, they are complicated experiments, but they are extremely, I think we are extremely insightful about how, what makes the cells sticky on one side and what actually maintains the stem cells on the other. And these are absolutely key. We, 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 are, trying to, we are trying to publish some of this work now. I, I, hope, <laughs> I hope you, you will enjoy the, it when, when it comes out. <laughs> Great. The next question is, um, why do humans have low implantation success? Is there a natural quality control process to guard, ag uh, to, to guard against using implantation as a quality control system no but this, this is this is an this is an excellent question and this is a question that we can we can tackle now so we are we are very interesting in, in, in this uh, so why do humans have low implantation success uh, it it can be uh, because of the the embryo itself and there are there are a lot of clues that a lot of human embryos are anoploid or comprise aneuploid cells. And those, those aneuploidies, uh, we, we don't know exactly why and, uh, uh, and how they occur, uh, but they occur quite early during, during um, uh, embryonic development, um, probably during the first divisions. And they are detrimental to uh, the, the, the further process of development. So that's for the uh, embryo side. And for the uterus side, uh, uh, they could be defects in uh, the in the attachment to the endometrium, and that would be a defect into, for for example, the formation of uh, the. Uh, well, uh, sorry, I'm going back to the embryo side, but it could be a defect into the formation of the sticky cells uh, in the embryo, uh, and it could be also a defect in uh, uh, the lining of the uterus, the endometrium. Uh, in mice, uh, there is also strong clues that the deserialization process. Uh, that happens after the initial attachment is is failing uh, is prone to failure uh, in aging mice. So aging mice uh, are losing the capacity to form the cocoon around uh, the blastocyst, which leads to a, a termination of the pregnancy. So all kind of questions. Uh, we are in the position of, of tackling some now. Uh, for and, uh, we are we are building up on. on, on question to, to, to answer the, the next ones but uh, uh, yeah one thing uh, we cannot uh, we, we cannot answer all the questions now I think the question of attachments 
uh, are, are clearly uh, on possible. The questions of destabilization, we are going to have to build a more complex uterus organism. We noticed that one of the molecules, one of the signaling molecules that you pinpointed early on was IL-6. IL-6 is also well known as an inflammatory cytokine that results after very uh, viral infections and other types of uh, pathologic processes. Do you, do you envision any way to make a connection between some of the congenital problems that can happen during development and viral infection of the fetus in utero? Yeah, so... Uh, what is clearly known, so there, there are two aspects. There is IL-6 in uh, the context of development, uh, and uh, here it is acti activating the STAT pathway. So this is regulating the STAT pathway into the trophoblast and also into the epiblast, and this is uh, leading to classical uh, uh, developmental cascades. And uh, besides this, uh, of course, it has a role into regulating uh, the immune cells. And... Um, here, it turns out that the immune cells are extremely important for the implantation process. Uh, at the moment of implantation, there are immune cells that are recruited, natural killers and others, that are here to, uh, to, um, uh, um, to clean the, uh, the decidua uh, from uh, senescent cells. And this cleaning will allow for the embryo to invade. Uh, this is one function quite well known, but there must be like many other ones. And it is becoming very clear in the last uh, decade that uh, the immune uh, cells that are recruited are extremely important uh, for, for this implantation process. So, so this is uh, clearly something that we could add uh, uh, in, into the uterus organoid uh, at some point. So we need, we need to go step by step, uh, but uh, there, there's a strong there's a strong possibility that we can recapitulate some more processes here. Yeah. And I guess we're getting down to our last question. And it was, uh, in your system, do you yet see the emergence of, uh, of the products of various germ layers, for example, mesoderm, ectoderm, which would give rise to vasculature and nervous system? Or is it too early in your system to start well, seeing we, that? Uh, so it's a, it's a very good question. So we haven't looked at it. Uh, but we uh, are culturing. Uh, so a, a blastoid is reflecting a day seven blastocyst. Uh, then we culture those for six more days. So we have a time equivalent of day 13. As I mentioned, this is a time equivalent. This is not a structure equivalent. Uh, we think that we are probably around the... I mean, everything is a bit asynchronous, I, I believe, uh, but we are definitely not at day 13. Uh, as, you, as you know, like in, uh, the gastrulation happens in the human embryo on day 14. So we are, we are just before this. And uh, of course, there's uh, currently an ethical debate uh, to whether we should uh, uh, culture human blastocyst for more than 14 days. Uh, and uh, we argue that uh, human blastoids are not uh, are only embryo models and are not the equivalent of human blastocysts. So there is not necessarily a restriction uh, uh, for the culture of human blastoids, but for because the debate is ongoing and because we don't want to create any uh, unnecessary controversies, we actually stopped the culture on the time equivalent of day thirty. Great. Well, thanks so much, Nicholas. That's, uh, I think, 
I think we've run out of time for any more questions, but this has been stimulating and fantastic, and it, uh, we look forward to seeing uh, exactly where you'll take this great model system.